Hey guys, welcome back. You're listening to the Investor Lab, the auditory epicenter for passionate people seeking a life of freedom, choice, and abundance. And you probably know, but just in case you don't, my name is Goose. And joining me on today's episode was an awesome guest. His name is Matt Chamberlain. And what he shared with us was his story about how he actually got into the market. But it's really interesting because he's only 25. He started thinking about how can I start to get ahead when he was 17. He went on a whole journey of trying to save and all of that kind of stuff. And what he's story really teaches is how through persistence and resilience, even if you don't earn a lot of money, you can still get into the market and you can still buy well. Now, he faced some challenges with the, with his first purchase. He bought a property. Uh, it, you know, He tried to add value to it. That hasn't quite worked out, but it's really awesome to listen to the way he has approached those issues, understand the challenges he, he's faced, and understand the complexities and the technical aspects of those challenges so that you can avoid making those mistakes too. So there's a lot of really great insights here, and I'm I know that this is going to be really beneficial to you, particularly if you are just in the early stages of your property journey and you're thinking, okay, oh my God, I got it's so hard. I got to save. I got to do all this kind of stuff. And, it's, and it can be really challenging to get started. This episode is really going to help you th- to think about that and start thinking about planning for the future. So I know you're going to enjoy it. Now, of course, if you need any help on your property investing journey, then just head to the investorlab.com.au. We have free resources, tools, guys. You can guys, you can buy my book. You can do all kinds of stuff there. And of course, if you want us to help you directly on a one-to-one basis and help you find a property and help you find success and avoid failure, then make sure you reach out to us directly. There's a contact form there and we can help you to accelerate your property investing journey. But without any further ado, let's get stuck into it. I look forward to seeing you on the inside. Hey guys, welcome back to the Investor Lab. Joining me today is Matt Chamberlain. Matt, thanks for joining me on the show. Pleasure to be here, Goose. Thanks. So Matt, you connected us, but you wanted to come and come on the show and share a bit of your story and help other investors to understand, you know, particularly younger investors, how to get into the game and start getting ahead and stuff like that. I'm really, I'm really excited to dig in and find out a little bit more about your story. So, why don't you give us a little bit of a background? You know, how old are you? Where are you? What do you do? All of that kind of stuff. Yeah, sure. So I am 25 years old. Yep. Um, I have just come. Well, I'm an accountant. By, uh, by trade, and I live in Newcastle on the eastern um, seaboard, a bit, north of, um, a bit north of Sydney. Nice. I actually just went to Newcastle for the first, for the first time recently. In fact, f- as we were recording this, it was only a couple of days ago. It's actually, pretty ni- it's actually pretty nice. Do you enjoy it? Incredible part of the world, mate. It's, um, it's like Sydney, but it's a little bit quieter. And yeah. um, property up here is much cheaper too. <laughs> Tidy, that's that's kind of what I thought as I was cruising around. We, we 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 didn't stay there for very long. We were actually sort of just passing through Gabby and I. Um, but I actually kind of noticed it was kind of like a little. It was like little Sydney. It was kind of like, and I I, I quite in, I quite in, I quite enjoyed it. So, okay, so you're 25. You're an accountant from Newcastle. Tell what? Tell us a little bit about your property investing journey so far. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think it's um, it all started when I was probably seventeen years old. Um, mm. So that's going back a fair way now. Um, and it wasn't really the property journey, but it was more so my money journey that started it all off. Mm. Um, and I read a book called The Barefoot Investor, um, which a lot of people, young people, would probably know of. But essentially, it was just like the the absolute fundamentals of you know sound money management, 
um, working out what good debt and bad debt was, you know, setting up structures and systems in place to make sure you're, um, you know, you're saving and you're not spending all of the stuff you're intending to save. So that, you know, that really got me thinking about what I can, what money can do for me. Yeah. Um, and it, it introduced me to investing really. And I was like, well, hang on a sec. If I, if I actually have X amount of dollars, that can be making me an income and I don't have to work 40 hours a week to, uh, to, to make money and, and live my life. And that was like the little light bulb moment that made me think, well, hang on, I want to achieve this so that I can go and, and do what the hell I want with my life as opposed to, um, to working for someone else. Um, or, or working 40 hours a week and, okay. and only having two days a week to spend okay. two years. At, at 17 years old, though, were you still at high school or like where, where, did, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't have been working 40 hours a week at that point, would you, or were you? No, no, not at all. So I was, I was still at school. Um, I finished year 12 and actually through school and then also through uni. Um, it wasn't the whole time, but there was a period of time there where I had three part-time jobs. Most of that journey, pretty much from 17 through to 24, I had at least two jobs and I was working, you know, they were, they were casual work. So, um, you know, through winter, I might've only been doing 15 hours a week, but um, through summer, I was probably pushing, you know, somewhere between 50 and 60, um, you know, when I was outside of uni time. So definitely putting some, some hours in to earn some money, um, which kind of started with obviously the barefoot investor, but then I started, um, when I started going to uni, I had to commute 40 minutes each way, each day. So I had all this dead time in the car and I kind of stumbled across audio books um, and then also podcasts. Mm-hmm. And um, they, those two things pretty much fundamentally changed, um, you know, my, my perspective on the world. Um, <laughs> and I, I suddenly was, I, I feel like I learned more on the, on the car trip to and from uni than actually sitting in the, in the classroom what what kind of what kind of audio books were you listening to at that stage? I started by listening to, uh, which is why where the property journey started. Um, Rich Dad Poor Dad, that mm. was the first one. Okay, so on, so you started with Barefoot Investor. That made you start thinking, okay, I just got to spend my money. Sorry, save my money, not spend it. And then and then it was barefoot, then it was uh, Rich Dad Poor Dad, right? That's right. And I found out about leverage through through Rich Dad Poor Dad. Okay, I'm going to come back to that, but I want to. I want to know, like, at 17 years old, you're still in high school. Most other 17 year olds are thinking about partying, even if they are working. They're like, "Yeah, I'm working to make money to go and have a good time." What actually fundamentally was different about your mindset at that point that made you think, "Okay, how am I actually going to make the most out of this?" How, am I, like, why were you thinking differently about money at that stage? Well, I mean, I, I should probably caveat this with I did go and um, blow a fair bit of money over in Europe twice. Um, so I definitely enjoyed um, being a you know a teenager and early in my early twenties. But the the fundamental thing for me was that I realised that money can make money, and I was like, well, why don't I just do everything I can to earn money with my time, yep. and then put that to work for me so it can continue to to compound and earn me money. Okay, awesome, awesome, cool, makes sense. All right, great. So you started at 17 years old, barefoot investor. You worked out, okay, so let's start bucketing. Let's start saving. Let's start doing all that kind of stuff. Then you, did we, had you already decided you were going to be an accountant before reading the barefoot investor? No. Um, and <laughs> okay. if, I had, if I had my time again, I'd probably be in a different industry. But um, basically, I studied a business and commerce degree at uni. Um, yeah. Very, very, very interested in um, owning business, running business, understanding how business works. Um, 
eventually, you know, four years down the track and a hell of a lot of audiobooks and um, podcasts to boot, I um, was given an opportunity to work for one of the big four accounting firms, um, PwC. Yep. So I, uh, I came out as a graduate, worked in the audit division for two and a half years or, or to date. And um, basically in that business, um, as an auditor, we our job was to go into third-party businesses, other businesses in Newcastle. Um, because of the size of the firm I was working for, we were working with essentially the biggest businesses in Newcastle. Some of them, for instance, you know, NIB Health Funds, which is a, an Australian wide, and it's actually a global business in mm. health insurance, but they have their head office in Newcastle. So we, uh, as an audit team, we got to go inside those businesses and completely rip them apart, understand how they work, um, what works, what doesn't, how they've got to get to where they are, and um, understand pretty much every single dollar and where it tracks within those businesses, yep. which for me was awesome because then I went, you know, well, well, this is how big business works. Um, so, so it gave me a great kind of platform to be able to go, or if I want to start my own business or work in small business in the future, I've, I've got a pretty good leg up. Okay. And but you're still working at a PwC now? I've just recently transitioned actually. I'm in real estate, but that was only, you know, a month ago the decision was. Okay, great. Tell me tell me a little bit about that. So you're in real estate now. What are you doing? I am. Well, um, I'm, I've actually just transitioned to be a, a buyer's agent. Um, How exciting. Yeah, yeah. And to be honest, you, some of the other podcasts, um, it was it was a journey that I inevitably was just going to happen. It was just, um, you know, what uh, what needed to happen between, you know, you know, I guess position X and 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 the end of the road at, at Y where I am now. Okay, great, awesome. So you're listening to these audio books, right? You're you're 25 years old. You're you're actually so you're 25 now. You were 17. You're listening to these audio books and all this kind of stuff. Getting financially educated. You read Rich Dad or listened to Rich Dad Poor Dad. You discovered the power and the benefit of leverage. When, tell me, how did your property portfolio start? Well, it started with four years of deep saving. Um, while I was studying at uni, I made myself a um, a bit of a promise that no matter how many hours a week I was working, because remember, I was working casually, um, and that meant you know my income each week would really fluctuate, but I wanted to save at least $150 a week, no matter what. Um, and that would, and I actually made that an automated payment straight out of my bank account as soon as my income came in straight into another savings account and I just didn't touch it. It was an online account, no credit card or, or card attached to it. Some weeks, you know, through summer when I was doing heaps of work, I would put much more than that away. But mm. in the middle of winter, if I was doing 10 hours a week, I wasn't getting much money on top of the $150. Um, so I had to scrimp and save to make sure that I was, I was, being, uh, I was saving that amount. Fast forward four years, um, I came out of uni and I had a, a relatively decent deposit. It wasn't going to get me anywhere um, soon, but I knew that um, I'd, you know, I'd put the wheels in motion and saved a, a fair chunk of change. Then, again, I went very heavily into saving through the first year and a half of uni, of full-time work, sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, and I saved myself just around about 50 grand, um, which along that, uh, that 18 months of full-time work, I spoke to a couple of brokers and I realized that that was going to get me enough to get into a property um, that, um, you know, that fit, I guess, what I'd fundamental, what I'd decided was my um, my strategy at that point in time. Okay, what was the strategy then? So, uh, look, I'm happy to be really transparent. I wasn't earning a hell of a lot through that whole period, and accounting in public practice, they uh, they don't tend to pay all that well. Um, so, with my income, I was really hamstrung with 
A, my serviceability, but B, my ability to continue to fund, say, a negatively geared property, which you'd typically find um, where you're chasing high growth. So what I decided was that I wanted to find something that was at least neutral to start. Um, And I also, uh, I kind of subscribed to a, um, to a bit of a philosophy as going, of going, buying something that was existing, but then placing a granny flat out the back. So you get a dual occupancy, um, and boosting that rent roll, which at the time, um, and still at the moment, I'm not earning a great deal. So, you know, when you can replace say a sixth or a fifth of your income through one dual occupancy deal, it's actually relatively, um, appealing. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. Okay. So. Tell me, tell me a little bit about that first property. So, where was it? How much was it? What was the what was the strategy? And and I mean, the strategy was buy something you could you could get you could put a granny flat in the back. But tell me a little bit about the deal. So, I used the services of a buyer's agent. I'm based in Newcastle, as I said earlier, and I knew that Brisbane was going to be a better play in the short to medium term for me than buying, saying, my backyard in Newcastle. Yep. The money that I was buying that I had to to buy probably wasn't going to get me something that was valuable in Newcastle. Um, so Brisbane seemed affordable for me. And, and I used, as I said, a buyer's agent, we focused on the North side of Brisbane yep. uh, and we settled in on a suburb called Petrie, which yep. is just up the road from the university of Sunshine coast. Yep. So found a block 607 square meters and it had to be over 600 squares for that LGA or that local um, government area for us to legally put a second dwelling in the backyard. Yep. So they helped me with that process, making sure that we had our criteria set. We uh, we found a place and we jumped on it. Um, it had been on the market for a while and it had actually gone stale. So it was quoted at um, offers above, above 369000 and uh, they'd had an offer fall through. It had been on the market for ages and we managed to secure it for um, for three seventy. Um, when a bit of feedback from the buyer's agent, um, knowing that sales agent at the time, they, they tend to, to market something, you know, 10 to 15 or even 20 grand lower than where they were seeing value in the property. So yep. from that perspective, I, I do believe we got a pretty good deal. Okay. Awesome. So then you, the, the plan was buy that and then put a granny flat on the back. That's right. And that's where the mistakes start to, uh, to right, come and play. Okay, cool. So, yeah, tell, tell me a little bit about that. Cause a lot of people think that, okay, I'm just going to buy something and put a granny flat on the back. But uh, sometimes it can be a little bit more complex, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, and my mistake was probably listening to the wrong opinions, okay. um, which inevitably cost me a little bit. But essentially what happened was I bought the property um, and it was, um, we got it uh, appraised at a rental of 380 a week. Mm-hmm. Um, on 370 purchase price, it was you know it was nice and handsome rental to start with. Um, but then basically, I was told from day one by my finance, uh, my broker, sorry, that I could apply for construction finance and get the granny flat built essentially straight away with my serviceability and my income. And however, he he was relying on the fact that I was able to um, finance on a valuation which would allow me to finance at 10 percent of the construction cost. Okay, can, can, can I just unpack that for a second? So was that was sure. that was that he assuming that the valuation of the existing property would value up higher than what you paid for it and therefore you'd be able to leverage the equity out of the existing property to be the deposit for the granny flat? Was that the is that is that what you're saying? No. So I had enough uh, additional deposit yep. um, cash in the bank to finance a, a a second loan, a construction loan on 
purely separate, like if we separate the first loan with the the um, existing property, yep. the second loan would have been 120 grand for the granny flat. Mm. Um, I had 12 grand set aside and I was able to put a 10% deposit down on that second loan. Yep. But all of this was based on a valuation coming in as the, uh, on the total finished product as being the original purchase price of 370,000 plus the cost of the granny flat contract ah, which so is 122. Oh, so the 400 and what's that? 490 would be in the total valuation coming back. Correct. Yes. And we were like to get finance across the line, the valuation on the finished product needed to come back at 490. Right. So what happened is um, he convinced me that yes, we can do this. Um, I was at the time I wasn't truly un- understanding of you know everything in this deal, relying on that um, that valuation coming in at, at what it needed to come in at. Mm-hmm. Um, I then proceeded on as soon as uh, we settled on on the settlement day. I got the granny flat providers to come in and do site works, um, and I put a fence up in the backyard, which divided, which essentially gra- uh, battle axed the, the block. Yep. Um, Fast forward two weeks, the broker calls me up and says the valuation came in at four fifty. Um, we can't proceed today. So unless, unless you topped it up with another forty grand or something. Correct, which I didn't have in my pocket. I just mm. <laughs> wasn't I wasn't forecasting for that to happen. Um, so what I was left with with was uh, a property that wasn't tenanted. It had uh, a backyard which you needed to which you couldn't access because there was a fence in between between uh, the back of the property and um, the space where the, the granny flat was going to be. Um, and eventually the mistake was that, um, or the cost of that was that instead of 380 a week, we, we had to secure a tenant at 350 a week. And as it stands at the moment, we, uh, we still have a vacant block of land out the back of that, that property because I haven't had uh, enough time to save up for that deposit and, and get the ball rolling on that again. Ouch. Okay, so how do you feel about that purchase now? I'm still happy with the purchase. Valuation-wise, it's actually increased in value a bit. Yep. So, you know, I know that this is a long game and, and there's um, 20 more years' worth of time that needs to be invested into this property before we realise or understand whether it was a good deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that, um, you know, in the short term, once I do get finance sorted and that granny flat does get into onto the back of the property, the the, the deal will be very positively cash flowed and, and I'll be a happy person. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. Nice. How So how far off do you think you are from being able to do that? Because at the moment, based on the rent, you'll be slightly, you'll be a bit, little bit negatively geared uh, or that kind of stuff. So so how long do you think it's going to take you to fully realize the, the cash flow out of that property? The aim is to, um, firstly, there's been another spanner in the works. My partner and I have decided that a PPR is more important now than mm. getting the granny flat. Um, so, but in saying that, we want to get the, the PPR sorted within, say, the next six months. Yeah. And then we want to move on to the granny flat as soon as possible after that. And with a bit of, little bit of growth, which we've actually seen in the property, um, and I believe that's probably more so about the price we paid for it and not necessarily the market in that area. Um, we might be able to leverage a little bit of gross equity in that property to to then still only have to put a 10% deposit down um, and just have that valuation come in a little bit higher. Yeah. Okay, cool. Awesome. So at the moment, you've just got that one in Petrie? That's correct. Yeah, just the one, but uh, definitely not going to be the end of the journey. 
Yeah, for sure. Okay, cool. That's the no, Matt, That's awesome. Anyway, because like the reality is, at twenty five years old, the fact that you've you've got one, you're now looking at a PPR. You've already had enough foresight to think about. Okay, how can how can I strategically do this investment? And even though the the granny flat hasn't quite worked out yet, having that kind of thing in your portfolio is obviously really really awesome. So, uh, what's what's your advice to other what's your advice to other investors? You know, in their you know in their mid twenties who maybe are scared about getting into the game or maybe are sitting on their hands or maybe aren't th- even thinking about it, what would your advice be to them? I think um, my story, like I, as I said earlier, I never really had a strong income. I still don't. Um, it's not as though I'm earning hundreds of thousands of dollars a year and, and you have to be earning heaps mm-hmm. of money to be able to get into the property market. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for instance, I understand if you're, worth, if you're living in the northern beaches in Sydney, you're looking at prices in you know that are through the roof and you just don't feel like you can afford that but there's plenty of other markets in australia much more affordable where you can put your money to work and it's actually you know it will start working for you and it might help you get it back into the the suburb you want to live in in the future so i think firstly um you know i'm a case in point that you don't have to have a high income to get into the property market Mm. um second thing would be that consider buying outside of you know your hometown Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I used a buyer's agent. There was no way that I was going to be able to buy, you know, 2,000 kilometres away from myself without some help. Um, and to this day, I still haven't seen that property. So, like, it, it, for me, it was more about the numbers. But um, And then the third thing would be put a plan in place. Like, I saved for, you know, four-plus four years to get to the, the, enough deposit to, to buy this property. Um, so if that's saying anything about, you know, needing to have a system in place and being consistent, um, it all starts with the plan. Nice. What, what's the, what's your goal with investing? Like why, why are you doing it? What's the outcome that you want to achieve and, and how do you think that your strategy may change for the next investment? The goal for my partner and I is to have choices in life. It's never about, it hasn't been about a dollar figure or wearing a gold watch or you know impressing anyone else it's been about us being able to say okay i want to drop the kids off in school and i want to pick them up in the future or i i want to be able to go to um, the soccer games on saturday or all that kind of stuff which um, effectively if we've got passive income we can then take some of our time back from a working career um, and use that on something that brings us joy or, or happiness. Um, and we've, at, at this point in time, knowing we've got so much time ahead of us, um, we've decided on a figure of, which might scare a couple of people, but of, um, of having $250,000 combined income passive um, by the age of 50. So yep. that would be, uh, well, 25 years from now. Um, if you think about, you know, inflation and everything that needs to go into the, the model between now and then, it's probably about $150,000 in today's dollars. Yep. Um, so it's not that far away from what other people would be thinking. Yep. Um, but we want to be able to have the decision to essentially um, decide whether we need whether or not we need to go to work um, from 50 onwards. Okay, cool. And, so, so, yours is, so yours is like a full out, a like 25-year strategy. You're like, cool, I'm happy to... I'm happy to ride this bike for the next 25 years and it's 50 when I want this to, to really, you know, for the fruit to start to bear. Is that, is that fair? Yeah. I mean, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I'll still want to be working 60 hours on, you know, when I'm 49 and then switch off at 50, but I want to, I want to have that line in the sand 
Um, yeah. So that then over time, as we, you know, as the portfolio progresses and we understand where we're sitting, we might be able to taper off a little bit before then um, and start making some choices earlier than that. But that would be the uh, the defining line, I guess, for us at the moment. Mm. Um, and going back to, I guess, what this property is going to do in our portfolio, it's going to be relatively strongly positive cash flow. And I dare say that our incomes will increase over the next um, couple of years. I think the next property, back to your original question, the next property would probably be more growth focused to balance the portfolio out. Interesting. Do you think that the Do you think that given you're buying a PPR now, which is going to essentially be uh, like th- that's a non-income producing debt, so that's going to that's going to, for lack of a better term, damage your serviceability because you'll you'll have a non-income producing debt. Do you think that getting another getting a growth asset is going to be the best contribution to your portfolio moving forward, or do you think that you probably might need to focus a little bit more on cash flow to supplement that kind of PPR? Great question, and that will I. Um, I'm sure you totally understand, you know, how serviceability works. That'll yeah. depend on our incomes at that point in time. So yeah. um, I'd like to think um, I've got, you know, big hopes and dreams that the income will grow um, and trying to put things in place to make sure that we do increase our income and then as a result of that, leverage the serviceability to um, to fit the portfolio and, and our goals at that point in time. Awesome. Awesome. And so where do you see, um, how do you see the market performing more broadly? So you've invested in Brisbane, you're going to then think about investing in a growth asset uh, next. And I'm, I'm assuming that might not be in the next, say, 12 months or you, how far off do you think that one might be? Probably more like within the next 24. Okay, cool. So over the next 24 months, and I'm asking just your opinion here, like pure, just out of mm. interest. Pure, where do you see? How do you see the market shifting, or what? How do you? Where do you think? If you were to draw, if you were to stand right now and look out into the ether, where do you think that next investment might be? Perth. Perth. Fascinating. Why? I um, this opinion might change over the next twenty. Of course, months, I'm not going to. Ho- I'm not going to hold it to you. I'm not. I'm not going <laughs> to. I'm not going to come down twenty four months down the line and say you said Perth and. and <laughs> But I'm, I'm curious. To, I'm curious to know why, and I'm under, I just want to understand your your perspective on it and all of that kind of stuff. That's all. Yeah, of course. So I'm. I personally believe that right now, and probably the next six to twelve months, is probably going to be the best buying opportunities that we're going to see in the next um, eight to ten years. And the reason I, for that is, so you go. I, I I agree. I I I wholeheartedly agree. I can't I can't more passionately agree with that statement. I think like between now and then, and this time next year, that's 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 going to be the best buying opportunity for the next decade. And it's just like it comes down to a couple of simple facts. Like you know, people can't buy property unless they can afford to borrow money to put mm. towards that property. And you know, serviceability is loosening up. Um, interest rates are at all time lows. Um, yep. The margin marginal difference in a reduction in um, interest rates these days is much more profound. Um, you know, as a, as you lose 0.25% on a 2% interest rate, you know, you're cutting one-eighth of your your uh, monthly cash flow, which is much bigger than 2.25%, say, on a 7% interest rate. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of these things coming together, you know, it just makes me really bullish on property in general. Um, and then I think I would then overlay that with, okay, well, what what's the recent history of capital cities in Australia? And, you know, there's been Sydney and Melbourne relatively strongly, um, strong growth, um, also high purchase price to get in, generally speaking. 
Um, Brisbane, you know, there's forecast um, quite some strong growth in Brisbane over the next two years. Um, I'd like, fingers crossed, that uh, that comes to fruition for me. Um, so, you know, in 24 months, m- maybe there will be a question of whether you're, if you're buying into Brisbane, you're you're kind of jumping in on the uptrend already, and you're missing some of that growth to start. Um, and which leads me to, I guess, um, some of the early indicators pointing to Perth at the moment. You know, lowering vacancy rates, um, indications that we're bottoming bottoming out in the market over there, and then overlaying that again with the fact that Perth and WA is heavily um, reliant on natural resources and extraction of natural resources going out into the rest of the global market. And I also am very bullish on China and their production in the next, you know, six years or so, um, which means a lot of reliance on our natural resources and it could be economic support for, for the Western uh, it's, interesting. Australia. it's interesting. I, I certainly don't disagree with you. I think the Perth market is looking uh, look, look, looking very good. Do you think, though, that the current uh, trade environment with China may dampen that uh, resource appetite? You, are you talking about the the wars going on between Donald Trump and and Why China no, at the moment? <laughs> no, no, I'm talking about I'm talking about Australia and China trade. Like China's already started already started saying that that you know putting you know basically telling people not to Chinese manufacturers not to buy Australian cotton. Um, they've reduced their uh, import of coal and all of that kind of stuff. So they are actively you know removing their own reliance on Australian resources. Um, do you think? Do, do, do you have any thoughts on that, or do, or do you do you think that, that could imp- impact? They haven't done, they haven't um, signified any slowdown on iron ore, but certainly other resources they have have are definitely looking to other sources in the global market. So, do you think that, that could have an impact on the resource sector, particularly in the purse market? I mean, I, I would be naive to say that it couldn't, mm-hmm. um, and I think that. If, if not China, we've got to look to its next biggest neighbour, which is India. Um, mm. They're only a couple of steps behind China in terms of their economic development. Um, and naturally, China, India, other um, developing countries are going to need some kind of support to build their industrialisation. Um, and look, Australia, we're just fortunate enough to have a hell of a lot of it under, under our feet. Um, so I, I can't imagine that let's say China switches the, the uh, turns off the switch, um, I think there'll be enough global support elsewhere in, um, you know, in the world to, to either fill most of that, if not all of that um, demand for our product over the next, you know, the medium term. Nice. Nice. Okay. So what's, before we wrap it up, I'm interested, like what overarching, we've kind of touched on it, but I want to kind of just crystallize this a, a little bit. What is the overarching um, kind of lesson that you've learned that that if you could go, if you could go back, would you have done anything different? And if you could, if you could speak to yourself at seventeen years old, how, what kind of advice would you give to yourself then that would have changed where you are now? Probably nothing to change. Well, one thing that wouldn't necessarily change uh, where I am now, but I'd tell myself that it's a long journey. Like just talking about it 17 to 25 it's what eight years mm. um i don't feel like i've moved too far down the path but, but you know in, in hindsight i guess you can reflect and say that i have i've you know put one of the big rocks in the jar um but it's it takes time and you, you can't build a portfolio overnight so I, one piece of advice would be just to you know understand that it takes a little bit of time to to take 
you know, steps forward in the journey. Um, and then the second piece, which coming back to the actual deal that, um, you know, it's problems with the deal would be making sure that I'm relying on the right people and the advice from the right people when I'm influenced or being influenced to make a decision about my financial future. Um, so, for instance, I took advice from a broker who was only looking at the finance perspective. Um, I had been told by the buyer's agent that, you know, from their experience, don't be surprised if the, you know, property purchase plus granny flat cost is going to stack up in a, in a bank valuation in, um, when you're applying for a loan. So, Don't I, be surprised if it, if it would, like they said, they implied that it would or wouldn't? If it wouldn't. Yeah, okay. So yep. so generally speaking, you know, they were saying, look, um, sometimes our, most of the time our um, buyers or, or people that are looking to, to create a dual occupancy, just because there's none of these properties for resale in the market, the banks mm-hmm. can't accurately value that kind of product. Um, yes, if you were to take it to market, you would probably get a premium price for that because another investor would see the value in that rental return. But if you're, you know, the way banks value property, they, they rely on comparable sales and they just aren't a significant portion of the market with dual occupancy, which have recently sold, which then a bank can go, okay, we understand what market value is for this property. So um, the, the buyer's agent was saying, just be cautious and expect that you might have to put, say, 20% deposit into that, um, into that deal as opposed to 10%. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Good advice. Good advice. Well, Matt, it's been uh, it's been really interesting getting to know a little bit about your story, and I'm excited to um, I'm excited to to see it unfold a little bit further. I'm excited uh, for yourself for your own your own real estate journey. I think that's really awesome. So, uh, have you got any final things you want to share before we wrap it up? No, nothing in particular. Just um, you know, just making sure that people are aware that nothing happens without a plan. So you've got to get whatever you want to do on paper. Um, and, and just get cracking on it. Awesome. Thanks again for your time, Matt. Appreciate it. No problem. See ya.